The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. I provided an outline on the back of the bulletin. As we continue to go through the book of Acts, true history of how Jesus started the church, established it through his apostles and the special apostle Paul, and it covers the first 30 years of the beginning of the church, pretty much chronological, and we are now in Acts chapter 17. And we're now 15 years into the beginning of the church with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Today we're looking at Acts chapter 17. We might land in verse 15 or 16 today. The title of the sermon today is Paul Provoked in Athens, Part 1. You should probably add that, Part 1. Has anyone ever been to Athens? Just raise a hand. Look at that. We have people who've been to Athens. How wonderful. Anybody here ever wanted to go to Athens maybe someday? Me too. You can go to Athens. It's a city with over 2 million, can you, 2 million people still in Athens, and much of it is there to see ancient Athens. Is much of it is there to see just by way of ruins, some of the ruins preserved uh, to an amazing degree being made out of marble and limestone. Well, that's where Paul's headed. Um, we are going to pick up, it's been two weeks since we were in Acts, so let's go back. I'm going to just read Acts chapter 17, 1 through 17, just to bring us up to speed, to preserve the continuity of where Paul is in his second missionary journey. And we left Paul in Thessalonica and then Berea, where once again he's being chased out of town, and now he's headed to the city of Athens. Starting at verse 1, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths or Saturdays, he reasoned with them, the Jews, in the synagogue from the Scriptures, the Old Testament, explaining and giving evidence from Scripture that the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he also said, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them in the synagogue were persuaded, some, some. And they joined Paul, some joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks, some of the Jews and a large number of God-fearing Greeks, with a number of the leading women as well. This keeps happening, women getting saved in every city. And Luke keeps mentioning that. People got saved, including women, and women, and women. Why? Because God made women in the image of God equally with men. Verse 5. But the Jews, who didn't believe, becoming jealous and taking along some of the wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city of Thessalonica in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, where they thought Paul and Silas were, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. 
when they did not find Paul and Silas at Jason's house, they began dragging Jason, the host, and some believers out of Jason's house, and they dragged them uh, out to the city square before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. That was treason. That was a capital offense. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released Jason along with the brethren. A pledge or a promise, probably in the form of money or silver, whatever it was, promising that Paul would not come back to the city of Thessalonica. So Paul was banned from Thessalonica. Verse 10. The brethren, the believers, probably those that got saved in Thessalonica while Paul was there, they immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. That's the next town, 60 miles going south and west. Thessalonica was a major city on the main Roman road, but Berea, 60 miles up, was actually off the beaten path. Good hiding place, so they thought, 60 miles away. So uh, they head to Berea. Uh, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And now these were uh, the Jews in the synagogue. They were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word, the word of Scripture, the word of the gospel, with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures, the Old Testament, which they had in their synagogue, daily to see whether these things Paul was preaching were so or accurate, according to biblical truth. Verse 12, Therefore many of them believed, many believed, Many. Now, in the synagogue in Thessalonica, it said some believed. Here in Berea, many in the synagogue believed. So there's a difference there. Along with a number of prominent Greek women. There it is again. Prominent Greek women and men. Wow, that's kind of interesting, this phrase throughout Acts of these prominent women in all these cities. What does that mean? It means women run the show. That's what it means. Anyway, uh, verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, uh, these Jews came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds, uh, going 60 miles from Thessalonica to Berea to uh, stir up a crowd and undermine the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Verse 14. Then immediately the brethren, uh, new believers, sent Paul out from Berea. Get out of town, Paul. Uh, we don't want you to get persecuted, stoned, killed. So they snuck him out of town to go as far as the sea. So he has to go to the coast. And Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. So Paul's going by himself. And it could be that Paul had some associates with him. It said that some of the men joined or some of the believers joined Paul. And that seems to happen along the way. Every city, people get saved. And then it says some joined Paul. Some joined Paul. So he seems like he's got this team of people, um, assistants and servants. Many times they're not named. In Berea, many joined him, and later in Acts chapter 20, it says that Sopater, S-O-P-A-T-E-R, was with Paul's ministry team, and he was from Berea. But he's not mentioned here until later on. So it could be that people like Sopater, new believers, are going along with Paul to help, to assist, to protect, to encourage, so that he's not totally by himself, but he's leaving Silas and Timothy behind in Berea 
to nurture, to train, to take care of, to give guidance, to give direction to this newly found church in Berea. They need some mature, seasoned leadership. That's what they will provide. So Paul leaves them behind in verse 15. And now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as the city of Athens. So there was an escort. So there were believers who went with Paul. They went to the coast. And then they get on the sea. And then they are going to sail south 300 miles. All the way down the coast of Greece and through the crannies and the cracks and the canals and around the islands. 300 miles on the sea until they get to the city of Athens. Verse, And they arrive there. Safely, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so Paul makes it to Athens. He gets there, could be by himself, could be with a few associates and helpers that he picked up along the way. But he's there waiting strategically for his main partners in ministry, which would be Silas and Timothy, who are back in Berea. He's also waiting on Luke, and Luke will rejoin the team a little bit later. So Paul's there by himself. We don't know how long he was there. Could have been days, maybe a week or so. We don't know. But he's in Athens. As far as we know, he'd never been there before, at least not as a Christian or an apostle or a missionary. So this is a new opportunity, great opportunity. Athens was world-renowned. And so Paul has some time there to sightsee. That's what you do in Athens, right? Sightsee. It was actually known as a tourist attraction even 2,000 years ago. So there's Paul. He's on vacation. Kick back. Get a ha- rent a hammock, swinging in the trees, relaxing, chilling until Silas and Timothy join him. In a, not, Paul's not going to take a break or vacation. Maybe sightseeing, but he's full steam ahead as a missionary and a witness for Christ in this amazing historic renowned city of Athens. So there he is in Athens. Um, his spirit was, oh, at the end of verse 15, as he's heading to Athens, he tells those who escorted him to the coast before he sailed to Athens, he told them, tell Timothy and Silas to meet me in Athens. Let's rendezvous there. And they probably did. We have to look at other scriptures, Paul's epistles, Thessalonians, First Thessalonians. More than likely, they did meet Paul in Athens. And then when they met in Athens, they came up with a new strategy. And then Timothy and Silas dispersed again. And they were commissioned by Paul to strategic places. Could be that at that time, Luke is in Philippi, helping those new Christians grow. But they will reconvene in Athens. Meanwhile, Paul's walking around the city of Athens. His And the first thing that comes to mind is, verse 16, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Now, those of you who have never been to Athens but always have wanted to go, let's pretend that today we're going to go to Athens. And we are getting on a ship, and we are up in near Berea, and we've got a 300-mile trip, and it's pretty dicey because this is three, 2,000 years ago. And we're getting on who knows what kind of a ship. We don't even know who the sailor or the captain is. We don't even know if we can trust him. Today it's going to be Jesse up there in the booth. He's our captain of the ship. And pretend for the next two hours while I'm preaching here this morning, pretend for the next 30 minutes or so while I'm preaching here this morning, that we are actually on the ship and we are sailing 300 miles. And hopefully before the service is over, we actually arrive at Athens. But I don't know if we're going to make it. 
And while we're sailing on the ship for 300 miles, pretend the Apostle Paul is on the ship and he is recounting to everybody there, regardless of why you're going to Athens. Maybe you don't want to hear it. He's going to talk out loud to everybody who he is, why he's going to Athens and what just transpired in the cities of Thessalonica and Berea. And as a matter of fact, Paul, he is so talkative and loquacious. He's actually going to go back all the way to Acts chapter nine when he got saved. And so that by the time everybody gets off the ship, everyone will have known who Jesus is, who Paul is, and what his missionary journeys were all about and what the truth of God is, whether you like it or not. So if you're one of those people that when you sit on the airplane and you put earplugs in your ears or headphones or pretend like you're asleep and close your eyes because you don't want to talk to anybody on the airplane, too bad. Paul is going to talk loud. And like I said... There is no guarantee. See that up there? That's our destination. That is Athens. That's actually modern-day Athens. And up there at the top, that's the Parthenon. It still stands. Made of marble. That thing was built, get this, 2,460 years ago. Much of it is still standing. It is made of marble. It was a temple. It was a temple... Dedicated to a god, to Athena, who is the goddess of their city, Athens. Supposedly, she was the goddess of wisdom. The Greeks prided themselves on their human wisdom. She was the goddess of crafts. Uh, the Greeks prided themselves on their art, their sculpture, all of the arts, literature, entertainment even. And also, she was supposedly the goddess of war. And so in 450 B.C., it took them eight years to build this thing, 2,000, almost 500 years ago, and it still stands on the top of that hill. It's one of the highest points in Greece. Today, I'm told, at nighttime, it's got all these floodlights directed on it so that anywhere in the city of Greece at nighttime, you can see it. So that's our destination. See how far we get. Uh, there were a couple things as we finished two weeks ago in Paul's ministry in Thessalonica and Berea that I didn't get to that are vitally important. We need to be reminded of them. So important we can't just pass over it. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to just review, summarize Paul's ministry in Thessalonica and Berea, highlight a couple of points, and then see if we make it to this amazing city of Athens. So let's go back uh, to, by way of review, Thessalonica. Uh, so in verse 1, on a second missionary journey, Paul goes to Thessalonica. It's in Macedonia. It's in northern Greece, we would call it. It's a key city. It's off that Roman road I was telling you about historically. Thessalonica, one of the key cities in all of Macedonia. It was a capital city at one time because of its strategic location. Also that it was it provided travel between uh, people who came and coming we're going for selling and moving about to different countries. So it was absolutely strategic. And so a lot of people lived there. And that's why the Apostle Paul chose it. It was highly populated, and it would be strategic to preach there and plant a church there. And if he can get a small group of believers saved, then they could disseminate uh, throughout many other lesser cities. And so the Apostle Paul did that. And as was his custom, Paul went into Thessalonica. First thing he does, looks for a synagogue. If he can find one, boom, he goes there. Why? Because... <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus said, and God's mission for Paul was uh, the gospel goes to the Jews first, then to the Greeks, then to the Gentiles. So 
the Jewish nation. Israel was the conduit of the gospel so that it might flood, spill out to the rest of the world. So that was God's methodology. And so Paul followed that everywhere he went, looks for the synagogue. He finds one in Thessalonica. He preaches there. He's a rabbi. He's welcome. They ask him to preach. He preaches the scriptures, the Old Testament. No doubt he it was very similar to the sermon he gave in that other synagogue in Acts chapter 13. And he culminates by saying, uh, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one that was predicted in your Old Testament scriptures as the coming Messiah and the Savior. It's in your Bible. You Jews have Genesis 3, 15. When Adam and Eve sinned and humanity fell into sin and God cursed the earth, God cursed Satan, and God also gave that promise that a son of Eve would come who would be a man who would undo the work of Satan and the fall and conquer Satan and sin. And that's the first Messianic prophecy, and it could very well be that Paul mentioned that. And Isaiah 53, where it predicted the Messiah would be killed or murdered, the Messiah, which the Jews of Paul's day, they didn't get that. Does not compute, does not compute. The Old Testament Messiah had to die. They didn't get it. But that's what he said. He told him. And this is fulfillment. And the Messiah did have to die. It's in the Bible. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. And wherever Paul goes, we see that it, that makes the Jews upset. The majority of them. They get angry. And they accuse him of being a blasphemous, false teaching rabbi. Get him out of here. Get him out of this synagogue. The Messiah is not going to die. You are perverting the scriptures. So that was Paul's custom. Well, not only would he die, he would rise again from the dead, proving that he was God's anointed, the king of the earth, and that he had the power to conquer sin, death, Satan, the world, and give eternal life. This is the Jesus I proclaim to you. Some actually believed we saw that, uh, but most of them rejected that message, and so they try to persecute Paul. Uh, key phrase in verse 5, the Jews became jealous. The Jews became jealous. That's key. That phrase is also repeated in Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> when Paul went to, on his first missionary journey to Antioch of Pisidia. And Acts 13, almost the whole chapter, is a sermon that Paul preached in the synagogue to the Jews. Very long. At the end of it, he culminates once again that Jesus is the Christ who had to suffer and die. That's the gospel message for sin. Some believed. Many Gentiles believed. Many Gentiles celebrated. Many Gentiles swarmed Paul and Barnabas and said, Oh, please come back again next Saturday to our synagogue. Okay. And when he did, the entire city was there. Mostly Gentiles to hear the message of the good news surrounding the synagogue and the unbelieving Jews got Jealous, that's the key word, jealous. Unbelieving Jews got jealous, stirred up a mob, chased Paul and Barnabas out of town. And that kind of seems to be the pattern of Paul wherever he goes. Once he finds a synagogue, goes and preaches. Some believe, unbelieving Jews get jealous, they get angry, stir up a mob, try to kill him, chase him out of town, goes to the next town, goes in the synagogue, does it again, all over again. Wow, Paul, why do you keep doing that when you know what's going to happen? Well, as a matter of fact, this has been the pattern all throughout the book of Acts. Because just to refresh your memory, right when Paul got saved, he was zealous as can be for Jesus. 
He studied the Old Testament scriptures his entire life. He was a master of the Old Testament as an unbeliever. Then when he got saved, boom, the light went on and he just understood the entire Old Testament in light of the fulfillment of who Jesus was. So he became an instant master from a Christian point of view of the Old Testament. Coupled with that, God had chosen him to be an apostle. And then God gave him all these gifts, gave him the indwelling Holy Spirit to understand Scripture even better and all these other gifts, an apostolic gift as an apostle and the privilege of getting ongoing divine revelation on par with the Old Testament to be added to the Old Testament to complement and fulfill the Old Testament. That was the Apostle Paul. Amazing. And he's out, and it says as soon as he got saved, he goes to Damascus of Syria, and he's preaching to the Jews everywhere he goes, and it says they got mad at him, the Jews got mad at him, and tried to kill him. That was in like 37 AD. Then they chased him out of town, and then he flees to the next town. He, he fled from Damascus to Jerusalem. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he's hanging out with the apostles, introducing himself. They're kind of afraid of him. And then they welcome him in. And then he's all excited. And it says he's going throughout all the streets of Jerusalem, preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul knows all the unbelieving Jews there in the Sanhedrin. They know who he is. And it's like, what has happened to Paul? This guy got messed up. He's acting like one of those Christians. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is against the law in our town. Doesn't he know that? He should know that. He used to kill people who preached Jesus. What has happened to you, Paul? Have you gone mad? And the Sanhedrin tried to get this kill Paul in Jerusalem. So guess what? He gets chased out of the brethren. Oh, Paul, they're going to kill you. We got to get you out of here. And they did. So they snuck him out of Damascus so he wouldn't get killed. Then he goes to Jerusalem. They sneak him out of Jerusalem so he doesn't get killed because of the Jews. So then he ends up going to Antioch, Pisidia on that first missionary journey. And the Jews get mad at him. And they became jealous. And then they chased him out of town there. And so from Antioch, Pisidia, Paul then went to Iconium, the next town, and he preached Jesus there to the Jews. And it says the Jews got mad at him and angry, so they chased him out of town there as they tried to kill him. They tried to stone him to death in Iconium, and so the believers helped him sneak away, and he fled to the next city, Lystra. And in Lystra, he preaches the message, and then Jews from Antioch and Iconium found out where he was, and they came miles and miles to hunt Paul down because they knew he was in Lystra, and then they stirred up the mob, And this time they were successful, and they stoned Paul almost to death. Drug him out to the city, and they thought he was dead. And then once again, he comes to his senses, and and then he sneaks out, and he makes a a flight to the next city, which is Derby. So it's the same pattern over and over again. Then he goes on his second missionary trip, and then he goes into Thessalonica. He preaches there. Some believe the Jews get jealous. The Jews get jealous. They try to kill him, chase him out of town. So what does he do? He flees to Berea. That's where we are now. And in Berea, he goes to the synagogue once again. And those Jews in that synagogue are different in Berea. So let's go ahead and look and pick up at Berea, because that's what I wanted to highlight today as, we, as we're going and heading towards Athens, because we didn't get to spend very much time of Paul's ministry in Berea. So having been chased out of Thessalonica by the Jews, He's fleeing. He's running to the next city. He's running not because he's a chicken or a sissy. Is it unspiritual to run and hide? Well, not always. I had five older brothers. I spent 13 years of my life running and hiding. 13 years? Yeah, because at 14 I was bigger than my brothers. Then they began to run and hide. But anyway, so it's not... 
cowardice. It's actually God's leading him and the, and the brethren, the believers are trying to preserve his life. Paul, uh, God still has 15 years of ministry for Paul. He can't die yet. God knew that. Do you know Jesus ran and hide and fled at times? First time Jesus ever preached in Luke 4 was in a synagogue. Open the scroll of Isaiah. Reads from Isaiah 61. Closes the scroll. This day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the Jews went ballistic. They, tr- they just tried to maul him and grab him. And it said that he whoosh, fled and snuck out of the city. They tried to kill him. And so for the next three years, Jesus would flee and hide at times because he knew God's timetable for him as God was leading until he would run no more, until he would willingly give his life. My hour has come. I'm the sacrificial lamb on behalf of sinners and willingly died. Paul will do that himself someday in the late 60s. He will run no more. But in the meantime, look at Acts 17. Just a couple of points I want to highlight in Berea. We really didn't get to emphasize last time. So uh, they took verse 10 of Acts 17. Believers took Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So this is on a, probably on a Saturday on the Sabbath. This is, for the most part, Thessalonica is in the Roman Empire. It's in northern Greece. It's in Macedonia. So it's really a Gentile city, i.e. pagan city, the dominant Religion was paganism and idolatry and all kinds of gods. But they happen to have a remnant of Jews in that city somehow. How they got there, we don't know. Other than being spread out, as we know from the Old Testament, Jews fled everywhere to hide for their lives. But there's enough to have a synagogue there. And in that synagogue... They had the scriptures, they had the word of God, they had the Torah, they had scrolls, they had we would, what we would call the Bible. It just didn't look like this because it was bound in scrolls. And at this time they had the entire Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? They had the entire Old Testament very similar to what we have today in terms of its content. We know that. In the form of the Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint, and also the Hebrew Bible. And from the Dead Sea Scrolls and other testimonies that we have today, we know that Paul's Old Testament and Jesus' Old Testament was virtually identical to our Old Testament today. So we know what he was reading from. We know what he was teaching from. So he goes to these Bereans. He goes into their Jewish synagogue. And once again, they recognize that he is a rabbi because to the Jew, he would be a Jew, which meant he probably was wearing his Jewish garment, probably had his Jewish beard, probably had his... uh, Hebrew Aramaic dialect going, introducing himself. Could be that his reputation went before him, for all we know. Silas, a respected Jew from Jerusalem, was also with him. So they let Paul preach in the synagogue. And verse 11 is really important. It says, now these, the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks who were in the synagogue there were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. More noble-minded. What does that mean? Well, they were more objective in how they thought about truth is what it means. They're actually willing to give Paul a hearing. They would no doubt hear things they'd never heard before. They would no doubt hear things that challenged the tradition and the leadership of their synagogue. Nevertheless, they were noble-minded. They were being more objective. They were open to learning. They were teachable is what it means. It has to do with a, a heart attitude. They had a better attitude. They had a better heart. Even though they were unbelieving, unfulfilled Jews at that time. So they were noble-minded. They were uh, open to listen and open to dialogue and open to studying. 
They didn't have their preconceived notions that shut them down and they weren't willing to listen to anybody entertain any new truth or examine their own worldview. And God forbid, oh, I have to change it in light of the truth. How inconvenient. That isn't how the, the Bereans were. The Bereans, they were noble-minded, teachable, open, objective, willing to think, be logical in light of Scripture. And they were more noble-minded than the closed-minded, hard-hearted, traditionally driven, myopic Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica. And an example of their open-mindedness and their tender hearts and their willingness to learn and be taught was that they received the word. That's awesome. They received the word. What is that? They received the teaching from the Bible. They received it. What does that mean? They welcomed it to receive, to welcome, to be hospitable. Wow, I never heard of that Old Testament verse before. Why have people, why have the rabbis been hiding that one from me? I didn't know Isaiah went... 51, 52, 53, 54. I thought it went 52, 54, 55, 56, which is very common. Many of the Jews didn't want to talk about Isaiah 53 because it said that the Messiah would suffer and die on behalf of sin. So they're, they're open-minded. And they received the word. Verse 13 calls it the word of God, which is two things. That means Old Testament scripture that Paul was teaching, coupled with maybe some new revelation the apostle Paul was bringing to them as an apostle. The word of God. What God thinks, what God delivered, what God revealed about truth. The emphasis being on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. So they received, they welcomed the word of God. With great eagerness. You know, there are some people who are just hungry for truth, hungry for scripture. You know, an unbeliever can be hungry for truth to the point that they just welcome the truth of the Bible. An unbeliever can, really. They can just be a sponge and take it in and take it in and take it in and take it in. Even though they are not saved yet. I had one of my seminary students this last week tell me that he'd been... A high schooler got saved on Easter last Sunday in his youth group here at a local church. And he had been working with this teenager for over two years, teaching him from the Bible. Again and again and again and again and again. And that unbelievable, he, was, he wasn't rejecting it. He wasn't a rebel. He wasn't hard-hardened. He was just taken in. And, oh, okay, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, okay, that sounds right. Yeah. So do you believe uh, in hell? Yeah. Do you believe in heaven? Yeah. Do you believe you're a sinner? Yeah. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved? Yeah. Do you believe that you need to accept Jesus in order to be saved? Yeah. Do you want to do that right now? No. And this went on for two years. And then for whatever reason, listening to the message on Sunday, the veil was ripped away. The blindness from sin, the satanic blindness was ripped away. And God opened his heart to believe the gospel. And they had quite a resurrection Sunday. Because Why? Well, because he was different than some. He was noble-minded. He was listening. It took time. The Spirit of God was working on his heart. People were being faithful, praying for him, being a good witness. Yet he was teachable. And he, in the end, he received the word of God with great eagerness. And so that's how some people are and some people aren't. When they aren't, you discern that and you dust the, uh, dust off your feet and you move on to somebody else. Don't throw pearls before swine. Don't waste your time. Be a good steward and be discerning about it. But this is true of the Bereans. So the Bereans were, were quite a people. 
And so they received the word of God that Paul was preaching and maybe, yeah, Paul was preaching with great eagerness. They were so eager. Contrast that with the Thessalonians. When Paul went to Thessalonica, it says that he taught for three consecutive Sabbaths or three Saturdays. Okay, we'll let you teach. Go ahead. Guest preacher. And so then he preached and it could be that, hmm, interesting. And then, you know, Paul, well, I got a three-part series. And like, well, yeah, okay, I guess we'll let you come back next week. But they didn't interact with him, as far as we know, on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. It's a week later, and then he comes back again. And a week later, he comes back again, and then that's it. Maybe Paul had a four-part series, and they said, three's enough. You're done. Get out of town. Three times with the Jews. The Bereans were different in that so they hear Paul preach in the synagogue, and then it says they are so eager about the word of God. Paul, we ain't waiting until next Saturday. I can't wait a week. Can we meet tomorrow? Can we have a Bible study, a scripture study, a Torah study, whatever it's called, on Sunday? And then again on Monday? And, and then Paul said, yeah, to the Bereans. Because... It says in the middle of verse 11 that they welcome the word of God with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. There it is. Daily. They were hungry for the word. This is distinct to the Bereans. And they were not arrogant. They were not condescending. They were not hypercritical of Paul. They had a respect for Paul. They cared about the word of God. They were objective. They were hungry for truth. They wanted to know more. They were sponges. And this reverence for the word of God comes out in the fact that they examine. So Paul would preach and it says they would examine the scriptures, examining, ongoing, continual. So as Paul's preaching, they're examining the scriptures, flipping through their Bible or their uh, electronic Bible on their phone. Or I don't know what they were doing, but they're examining the scriptures that they have access to as Paul's preaching. Wait, this wait, this guest rabbi said that this the Messiah has actually been here already and we missed him. And he was down in Jerusalem. And he died when he was 33, and he actually had a name, and his name was Jesus. Joshua, Yeshua, God saves. He's already been, he's come and gone. How can that be? And the way he came and went is he died as the Messiah, as the king. Not only did he die, he was murdered and killed unjustly, not by the Romans, Not by unbelieving pagans, but by the people of Israel, his own people, the leadership of Jerusalem. They are the ones who murdered him. How can this be that our coming Messiah, King of Kings, is going to die? And that Yahweh would allow, how would Yahweh allow that to happen? Is that true? Is that in keeping with the Old Testament? Is there anywhere in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the prophets, where it says that Yahweh Almighty God would allow His Messiah, His precious one, to die? No doubt, this is probably what they were scrutinizing in the Scriptures. And then Paul said, well, yes, clearly, go to the Psalms. Pointed out where it was, Psalm 22. He shares it with him. He reads it. Not only is the Messiah going to die and be killed and murdered, he will be mocked. 
And it will be a public execution. And people will walk by and mock him. It says right here in your Hebrew Bible in Psalm 22. Not only that, the form of execution is even predicted a thousand years before it happened. He would be pierced in his hands and in his feet. Crucifixion. This was convincing to the objective hungry Bereans. Paul, tell us more. Tell us more. I will. Go to your prophet, Isaiah 53. Where clearly this is of the Messiah. 700 years before he was born, the Messiah would come. The Messiah would be precious to Yahweh Almighty God. The Messiah would someday reign and rule as king of kings. But before that happened, he would be unjustly killed, unjustly murdered. And not only were the Jews and the leadership of Israel responsible for it, Yahweh Almighty God himself is the one who crushes the Messiah. That was something that probably just blew their minds. Wait, are you trying to tell me that Yahweh God, the covenant God, the good God, who says that Israel is his people and the Messiah is his son, that that God, Yahweh, is the one who killed the Messiah? He is the one who crushed Jesus? He is the one who had Jesus murdered? Yes, it is. It's right there in your own Bible. And it had to happen. He was crushed for our iniquities. He had to die. He died for sin. That's the way of salvation. If the Messiah didn't die, there's no salvation for anyone. The shed blood of animals provides forgiveness for no one. So no doubt this is the interchange that was going between Paul and the Berean Jews because this was a truth that the Jews of Paul's day, they didn't get it, they didn't understand. That truth that was so clear in the Old Testament had been shrouded and drowned out by the tradition of men over the course of hundreds of years. And Jesus and the apostles had to peel away the human tradition and the false man-made teaching. That Jesus told the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you smother the truth of the word of God with your tradition. So this is what Paul is doing. He is unveiling the gospel of God's grace from the Old Testament. Grace didn't begin with the coming of Jesus and the foundation of the church in the New Testament. Grace began in the Old Testament. Grace was in the Old Testament. Grace began in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The way of salvation has always been the same. Some sadly have said that salvation in the Old Testament was by works and salvation in the New Testament is by grace. That is wrong. That is unbiblical. That is heretical. That is damning. It's always by God's grace through faith in his revelation to his people. So this was, this was absolutely uh, eye-opening, transforming, and also exciting for these Berean Jews They're examining the scriptures daily uh, and the principle that has been preserved by the church. And I think rightfully so for 2000 years from the example of the Bereans is that we need to be like the Bereans. Christians need to be believers. By the way, they're modeling a way of Bible study and discerning and listening to preachers even before they're saved. And then no doubt when they became Christians, they probably practiced the same discipline of examining the scriptures, scrutinizing all teaching that they're hearing through the The word of God. And that's what we need to do. Anytime we hear something, because Paul, think about it. Paul was an authoritative apostle. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. What Paul spoke through his gift as an apostle was the very word of God. It was divine and special revelation. It was binding. It was authoritative. It was the equivalent of the Old Testament. He was a prophet. He spoke for God. He was the mouthpiece of God and Jesus. And you would think that 
Wow, if we had the privilege to sit under the teaching of Paul, we would be in awe. And, Whoa, whatever you say, Paul, yeah, absolutely. Everything you say, we believe it. That wasn't their attitude. Their attitude was good. They were open and teachable. At the same time, they had an allegiance to the truth of the word of God that was higher than the word of man. And they wanted to make sure that this Paul guy that they just met, they don't really know him, seems to be saying truth. We have got to scrutinize what he says and subject it to the Bible. The Bible is the authority, not this man's word necessarily. And when they did that, they examined everything Paul said in light of Scripture, and and it came out 100% of the time. Probably the Bereans got this discipline maybe from Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, where God made it clear to Moses, if a prophet comes to town, says, Thus saith the Lord, and he teaches, and he says he can do a miracle, And if what he says does not come to pass, do not fear that man. He's a false prophet. He is a false prophet. Stone him to death. That's how important this was to God, to being discerning and to preserving truth and to not being misled. Especially someone who speaks in the name of Yahweh, speaks in the name of God, speaks in the name of Jesus. They need to speak truth because if they speak deception or lies, that is blasphemy. And it warranted the death penalty according to God. And no doubt the Bereans, they were Jewish. They had the scriptures. They knew Deuteronomy, and they were abiding by it. He says he's an apostle, a representative of God, a spokesperson of Yahweh, a prophet. Then we will subject everything he says in light of Deuteronomy 13, 18 to scripture. And they did. Paul didn't mind. Paul probably respected that. Paul did respect it so much that he told Luke to write it down. That's why it's in our Bible. So... Practical application. There's tremendous application for us today as Christians. We need to do what the we need to be a Berean. We need to examine the scriptures when any time we hear teaching or preaching or we read something. Somebody writes a religious book. We hear a sermon. We hear a Sunday school class. We go to a Bible study, and we need to take what they are saying and examine it through the lens of Scripture to see whether these things are so. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, examine everything carefully, scrutinize everything carefully, be very specific and detailed. Examine everything carefully and accept the truth and reject every form of evil. False teaching is a form of evil. So be a Berean. And it's no wonder that over throughout church history, Sunday school classes have been named Bereans. The Berean Sunday school class were the most spiritual in of all the Sunday school classes. Or uh, Berean ministries, Berean seminary, Berean college, Berean church. There's a gazillion Berean churches. That's good. We care about the word of God. We care about truth. God's word stands. It's the authority. It reigns and rules over everything. I don't care what your name is, Mr. Pastor, Preacher, Bible Teacher. You are to be subjected and scrutinized by the truth of the word of God. And so we, we need to practice that in our own church. Pastor Cliff said, so what? What Pastor, Pastor Cliff makes mistakes. Pastor Cliff is finite and fallen. Pastor Cliff uh, needs to be held accountable to the truth of the inviolable, inerrant word of God. And all of our elders. And if you're a Sunday school teacher, same thing. Or you lead a Bible study, same thing. You, te- you teach, teach children's Sunday school. Somebody better be scrutinizing what you're teaching. To keep it in light of the word of God. You you got your favorite Bible teacher on the radio. Are you subjecting what he says to the Bible? 
Are you studying books and reading books by your favorite theologians? And you're just unwittingly accepting everything they say? Don't do That's dangerous. They are not perfect. You got to vet it through the Bible, the Word of God. It's all over the place. Even the first Pope Apostle Peter, who was a conduit of divine revelation at times, on behalf of God, made mistakes, even as an apostle. And we know that he had to be rebuked by Paul for his false thinking, which led to false behavior about wrong theology, says the book of Galatians. And and then Peter got straightened out, and he repented. That was good. But Paul wasn't just going to allow Peter to do what he did and say what he said because he was the headshot big apostle who spent three and a half years with Jesus. Paul didn't care. What you're saying contradicts biblical truth. And you're leading people astray. Repent. That's what Paul did. He did it publicly. How embarrassing for Peter. But he had the humility to recover, to admit he was wrong and recover. Tremendous humility. Good model for us. Thank you, Peter. And also thanks to the Apostle Paul for having the courage to do that. Oh, I better not say anything. I might hurt Peter's feelings. I might be rejected and ostracized by all of his friends, the other 11 apostles. Mm, No. God's truth was the priority. Thank you, Paul. And thank you to the Bereans. As God was working on their hearts, being a tremendous example for us. So practical lesson we take away from this, be a Berean. Paul had great success there. God worked, spirit worked on their hearts, on the word of God that was preached, the gospel of Jesus. Verse 12 says that many of them believed revival in Berea. That's awesome. Along with a number of prominent uh, Greek uh, women and men. So they're having a revival in Berea. Then the Jews of Thessalonica, they find out about it. They're angry. They send... Uh, a contingent from hometown 60 miles to attack Berea, the church of Berea, the Christians at Berea, and and particularly the Apostle Paul, because they can't stand. It doesn't say that they were uh, mad about just Paul. It says when they heard that Paul was teaching the Word of God, they didn't like that. The Word of God, they didn't like the Word of God. It was proclaimed by Paul, and so they agitated up the crowds, and they're going to try to kill Paul one more time. The believers found out about it, and so... They take Paul, sneak him out of the city, and they get him down to the coast, and they send him off to Athens. And there he sails 300 miles where he's going to end up in Athens. Now, before we get to Athens, as we're about to land, we're almost there. Just in light of this history, I wanted to stop and pause because this is so important. So Jesus comes as the Messiah, born in Israel, born in Bethlehem. Preaches to his people. He's in in fulfillment of their scriptures. But for the most part, they reject him. That's John chapter 1, verse 11. They reject. He came to his own and those who were his own received him not. Except a few. Just the remnant. And then Jesus commissions his Jewish apostles to preach his gospel starting in Jerusalem. For the most part, uh, the nation as a whole and the leadership of Israel rejected Jesus, his gospel, and the apostles. So then they go to the rest of the world. And then God commissions Paul, five years into the existence of the church, to be a special envoy and ambassador and apostle to the Gentile world. But Paul's a Jew. 
trained in Jerusalem, among other places. And now he's saved. And Paul starts out preaching to the Jews. And that will be his methodology we already talked about. But he starts out preaching to the Jews. But he's rejected by the Jews time and time and time again. And we already established that everywhere Paul went, uh, some would believe, but many would get angry. And the reason they got angry is because we read two times in Acts 17 and 13, it says the Jews became jealous. The Jews became jealous. The Jews became jealous. And they became incredibly jealous and even hostile to the point they wanted to kill Paul and almost succeeded by stoning him to death. So some might question, well, why is God allowing Paul? And why is God subjecting Paul to this time and time and time again over the course from A.D. 36 all the way to uh, A.D. 66 of being subjected continually to hostile Jews who won't believe, who want to kill him? God, why are you doing that? We already know the pattern. For the most part, they won't believe. They just get jealous and mad. Why, God, why are you letting the Jews keep getting jealous through Paul? Well, I want to close with this. Go to Romans chapter 11. It's, it's not just happening willy-nilly. It's not just happening without God giving a care. It's not without, it's not happening as though it's not part of God's plan. God is completely sovereign. Uh, Derek read Psalm 115 earlier. I love verse 3. It basically says, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. You know what that means? God is in charge. He's in charge of everything. He's completely sovereign. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by mistake. Nothing happens by coincidence or luck in the plan of God. He is in charge of everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good, particularly for those who know him and love him. Even the bad things. God takes bad things, evil things, and will work them for good. He doesn't say bad things are good. He takes bad things and will work them towards his end, which is a good end, the perfect end, exactly the way he wanted it. And you can apply that to your personal life as a Christian, and that's very comforting. And you can also apply it on a larger and grander scale in the plan of God. So look at uh, Revelation chapter 11 real quick. Wow, these Jews, man, they are just not being receptive. There's only a remnant is believing. As a matter of fact, they're responding very hostily and angrily and violently to the gospel in the name of Jesus. Why is this so? Has God abandoned his people Israel? God made all these promises to Israel in the Old Testament from the time of Abraham all throughout the Old Testament. said, you are my people. You will always be my people. I will never forsake you. I will never let you go. It's an eternal covenant. You'll always be my people. Wow, you look around at the, the Jews throughout church history, they, they're not around. Has God abandoned his people? Well, Paul addressed this for us. Romans 11, we'll close with this. Uh, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? God hasn't rejected the Israelites, the Jews. May it never be. May Geneta, absolutely not. For I too, I'm a Jew. I got saved, verse 2. God has not rejected his people, the Israelites, or the Jews, whom he foreknew, whom he elected before the foundation of the world. They are secure by virtue of election. Verse 5. There has come also to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So there are some Jews who are believing. Verse 7. Well, what's going on here then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. The entire nation of Israel is looking for their Messiah, and for the most part they missed it. But those who were chosen obtained it, those who were elected, but also those who believed they obtained it. They have found their Messiah in Jesus. The rest were hardened. They were hardened. 
they refused to believe through a hardened heart. Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? I mean, so these those who disbelieved and rejected Christ, have they messed it up for the, the rest of the nation of Israel? And have they undermined all the promises God had made in the Old Testament to Israel forever? No, they, they haven't undone that. God still knows what he promised. He's going to be faithful to his promise to the nation of Israel as a whole. May it never be, verse 11. But by the transgression and unbelief of the nation of Israel, of the majority of Israel, by their transgression, by the rejection of Jesus, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. There it is. By virtue of the unbelief of the nation of Israel, salvation, God channeled that conduit to the Gentiles and the rest of the world. In other words, you as a Gent, if you're a Gentile and you have come to know Jesus and you got saved, you did that because God had a plan and he did it through unbelieving, hardened Jews. His gospel went to them, ricocheted off of them, landed in your lap. You believed, you got saved. Praise the Lord. That was not an accident. That was God's plan. And God continues to do this and save Gentiles and save more and more Gentiles and save more and more Gentiles. Why is he doing this? Well, he is trying to, at the end of verse 11, he is trying to make the Jews jealous. He's trying to make the Jews jealous. He's trying to make the Jews. And we just read Acts 13, Acts 17. The Jews got jealous. The Jews got jealous. The Jews got, God is accomplishing exactly what he's, this is his plan. He's, he's making them jealous to woo them to repentance. And you know what? He's going to be successful. He's going to keep wooing them and keep wooing them for this glorious thing called the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ to the point where the nation of Israel collectively all around the world is going to be softened. They're going to be wooed. They're going to be regathered into the land in the future. It's really going to happen. And at the end of the age, the end of history, God will have accomplished his plan. And it says that all Israel will be softened and the whole nation will look at the Messiah on whom they have crucified, whom they have pierced, and they will welcome him. They will weep over him, and all Israel will be saved. Isaiah eleven twenty six. Isn't that awesome? This is part of God's plan. We are a part of God's plan. This should affect your attitude of Jews. This should affect your attitude of Israel, the nation of Israel. They are still God's people, even though they are in wholesale rejection of him. Keep praying for the land of Israel because that's what the Bible says to do. Keep praying for the Jews because that's what the Bible says to do. Individual Jews can be saved through the gospel, but they will be few. They will be a remnant. But in the end, God's going to be totally true to his Old Testament promises, which are replete. And the entire nation of Israel is going to bow the knee in love and adoration to Jesus, their Messiah. And when they do, then they will enter into the millennial kingdom for a thousand years as a redeemed people and reign with Christ along with the church on earth. What a glorious day that will be. Now we have the wonderful privilege to have communion, the Lord's table. So uh, if you would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and our ushers can go ahead and get the elements. And Actually, you can go ahead and start passing out the elements while I read this passage so we can prepare our hearts. And uh, Richard, can we have somebody on the piano there to play in just a minute as we meditate in our own hearts Quietly after I read this passage, first Corinthians 11, Jesus gave two ordinances to the church, baptism, once you get saved and then from the time you become a Christian till Jesus comes again or you go to heaven, God wants all believers, Christians to practice the ordinance of communion or the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. 
Eucharist, uh, that's in verse, that's a Greek word in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 11, Eucharist, and it means Thanksgiving. So communion is a time of, it's not a time of morbid, it's not like a, well, I'll just put it this way. Eucharist means to be thankful. <laughs> you are rejoice. It's a celebration. Just like the Passover. Celebration was the word used. Celebrating, rejoicing, being thankful for Jesus, our, our personal Savior and Messiah who died on the cross and rose again from the dead as a substitute for our sin, giving us eternal life, adopting us into the family of God, allowing us to be reconciled with God, our maker and creator. And he did it by giving his life and willingly shedding his blood on our behalf so that God the Father might be appeased with his death. And he died as our substitute. And we believed in his gospel. And by believing that we were sinners and repenting from our sin and acknowledging that Jesus was the only way to be saved, we were born again. And if you're a born again, saved, forgiven Christian, God gave us this ordinance called communion to celebrate Again and again. He said to celebrate it often and to keep celebrating celebrating it as a church until he returns again. So we celebrate in light of Jesus' coming. So we actually live in light of Jesus' death that set us free and forgave us of sin. And we live in light of Jesus' coming as well. That we might be prepared and uh, we look forward to him restoring all things and making them right. And that will be a glorious day as well. So it is a time of celebration and thanksgiving for the Christian. But also here Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11 It is a time to examine our hearts. So I'll give you a a moment to do that in just a second. But verse 23, Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That's directions about communion. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, that's from our word Eucharisto, Euchariste sauce. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body. It's symbolic of my body. It's not literally his body. It's, It's a symbol. So the bread isn't the body of Christ. The people are the body of Christ. But the bread is a symbol of his physical life that he gave as a sacrifice for sinners. So it's symbolic. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Keep keep celebrating this on my behalf. And in the same way, he took the cup at the Passover, also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So it represents his blood that he gave his life. The life is in the blood. He died so that we might have life. So this is the new covenant, my blood. The new covenant provides forgiveness of sin. The new covenant provides the indwelling Holy Spirit. The new covenant was something very specific, a precious gift from God to his people. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what we do this morning as Christians, we remember Jesus, who he is and what he did on our behalf that we might give him thanks for the forgiveness of sin and the life we have in him. And then Paul warns, you do need to examine your heart, Christian. Uh, Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup or takes communion of the Lord in an unworthy manner, don't do it flippantly because otherwise you'll be guilty of the blood of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, but let every Christian examine themselves and in so doing, then eat the bread and the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on themselves. So judge yourself rightly or properly. So 
uh, as Richard's playing, I'm just going to give you a minute or so just to meditate in your own heart. Talk to the Lord Jesus. Thank him for forgiveness of sin. Celebrate and confess any sins that you may need to do uh, and recognizing that to our Lord. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.